Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Engineering Student Experience Podcast. I'm Paul Nissenson from the Mechanical Engineering Department at Cal Poly Pomona. Back in episode 25, I interviewed Simi Mehrabani, who's an engineer at my local air quality regulatory agency called the South Coast AQMD. One of that agency's primary responsibilities is to develop rules that limit the emissions of air pollutants for the health and safety of the over 15 million people who live in that district. The South Coast AQMD issues permits to businesses who have the potential to emit a certain amount of pollutants into the air, and CME in particular is part of a team that issues permits to businesses that have coding and printing operations. In order to receive a permit, a business must demonstrate to the regulatory agency that they have a plan to reduce emissions of air pollutants to acceptable levels, and this plan must be backed up with the appropriate engineering calculations. The equipment that reduces air pollutants must be carefully selected to minimize the initial capital costs, the ongoing operational costs, and they must target the specific compounds that are being emitted by the business. For example, a business that has printing operations likely will emit significant levels of volatile organic compounds, also called VOCs, due to the evaporation of ink. VOCs may be toxic on their own in high enough concentrations, or they may contribute to the formation of other pollutants, such as ozone, which is really important here in Southern California. There are several options for reducing VOC emissions from a printing operation, and the best option will depend on the amount of VOCs generated each day, how many hours per day the business is operating, the combustion properties of the VOCs, and, well, many other factors. Most business owners are experts in their particular field and understand the business side of their operations, but most business owners are not engineers and don't have the technical expertise to develop a plan to reduce the emissions of air pollutants. So most business owners must turn to engineers who are experts at air pollution control or also called air pollution abatement. Joining me today to discuss how engineers help businesses comply with local air pollution regulations are Anusha Oskuyan and John Van Bargen from Ship and Shore Environmental, a company that specializes in the design and construction of air pollution abatement systems. Anusha is president and CEO of the company, and John Van Bargen is the vice president and director of engineering. Both have decades of experience in this field of air pollution abatement. I first met Anusha and John about seven years ago, and every year when I teach my senior level course on air pollution, I take my students on a field trip to Ship and Shores facilities in Signal Hill, California, so they can see firsthand how the concepts learned in the classroom actually apply to the real world. Anusha and John have always been very welcoming and love sharing their knowledge with the next generation of engineers, and so I thought it would actually be really great to record this episode with them. During the interview, Anusha and John discuss why the field of air pollution abatement is really important in our everyday lives. They discuss how Ship and Shore Environmental works with businesses and local air quality regulatory agencies to help meet the air pollution abatement needs of those businesses. They also discuss the types of engineers who typically work in this field, the history of air pollution control in the U.S., and many other topics. And before we get to the interview, I just want to mention that uh, I recorded this episode in John's office at Ship and Shore Environmental. Like any company, there's a lot of activity going on, and sometimes you'll hear some background noise, although I think I was able to clean up most of it in post-production. Also, if you make it to the end of the interview, you'll notice the interview ends a, a bit abruptly. We recorded this episode during business hours, and Anusha and John understandably had to take a call with a customer. I was just happy to get an hour of their time. And now let's hear from Anusha Oskuyan and John Van Bargen from Ship and Shore Environmental. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, I am here at Ship and Shore Environmental, a company based in Signal Hill, California. And today we're going to talk all about the field of air pollution control or air pollution abatement. And I have sitting across from me on my left, I have uh, John Von Bargen, who is the Vice President and uh, Director of Engineering at Ship and Shore. And on my right, I have uh, Anusha Oskuyan, who is the President and CEO 
of the company. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, I've been really looking forward to this episode because my, my research background long time ago when I was in graduate school and as a postdoc was doing computer modeling of atmospheric systems, but I didn't really get much exposure to the control side of things. So how do we actually reduce the air pollution? I, I learned a lot about air pollution formation, but not the control side. So anytime I can talk to anyone who's an expert in those fields, I'm, I really love it. Um, before we get into that, though, I think it'd be really helpful for, for the listeners to get a, some background information about you both. So can you remember when you first started getting interested in engineering and what was your, um, let's say, your educational background to prepare you for this field? Um, thank you for the opportunity and I'd um, love to share some personal experiences as well as uh, what could be eventually beneficial to a lot of the listeners. I became very interested from early days in high school, junior high, high school, where I became fascinated with chemistry and the dynamics of chemistry. Um, I realized that so much in the world that we live in uh, relies on it. And um, the sense of coming up with solutions I did not know what solutions I was looking for, but the making of the things and, and all that there was about it fascinated me. So I knew and realized that I would eventually have to go to something technical to fulfill the, the questions in my head and um, the love of um, chemistry and formulas and numbers and math and sciences. Um, so that was one of the first times I could remember and it was all owed to a wonderful chemistry teacher I had um, at an early age. And where did you go to uh, for, for your advanced studies? I, um, I have migrated to this country. I'm originally from Iran. I came to Colorado to finish my high school. So I did a couple of years of high school there and eventually University of Colorado. And that's where I um, took up chemical engineering and um, continued with it, um, with the hope of eventually being able to uh, work as a chemical engineer. And how about you, John? I grew up in a, uh, in a small city in the middle of the jungle, in a uh, oil refinery city, was owned by uh, Standard Oil. My father worked in Standard Oil. And I was always, uh, you know, interested to see what was uh, working there in that refinery and the tankers coming in. And I had an uncle that was an engineer, was a chief engineer on, uh, on a tanker. And I always liked the idea, you know, of being an engineer. And I was at that time, I was about 13 years old. So uh, this is a more a little political story where Indonesia became a, a, a country because it was a Dutch uh, colony at one time. And so we were all thrown out of Indonesia. My father sent me before me, before him, to Holland. And in Holland, I went to the, uh, I graduated high school and I went to the Merchant Marine Academy. And then I started working for uh, ESSO, Standard Oil, of course. And I was put on uh, new ships and we were building new super tankers in those days. So I spent a lot of time testing the ship itself, what it would do. So they put me six months on the shipyard and six months on the ship. And from there, I, uh, grad, uh, I uh, immigrated to the U.S. because I did not uh, like Holland. I didn't like the weather and all of that. And uh, I came here and I worked at uh, Loyola University, which is now Loyola Marymount. And uh, I was in charge of maintenance and later on of the whole physical plant. So I took care of everything, uh, construction as well as uh, maintenance, security, and you name it, it was under me. But while I was there, I studied chemical engineering. So I did that for about uh, seven years. And then I joined one of the uh, regents of the university that started a company in air pollution. And so here I am in the air pollution field. 1971. Probably many listeners don't know anything about this field of air pollution control or air pollution you know, abatement. How would you describe this field 
And could you explain why you feel it's a, a really important field to be in? True, many uh, people are not aware that um, really should be aware that everything we do and everything we make and every manufacturing facility that is potentially processing um, any chemicals, um, making any plastics, making products that would be used for pharmaceuticals, for just about anything that we come in contact with, and the process of making it and manufacturing it is wonderful are things that we need. However, as a result, we are constantly working with various chemicals that in the process are constantly emitting emissions or what we refer to as volatile organic compounds, VOCs, that are just sent out to the atmosphere. For, for years and years, I believe manufacturers were uh, very concerned with running their businesses and not necessarily thinking about the aftermath of what they're doing to the atmosphere, what they're doing to, to the neighborhoods that they're around. And um, the emissions became a major problem. And I usually refer to this as we are here in Southern California, um, the LA basin for years and years that you flew in, you could not see five feet in front of you because of the existence of all the pollution and the smog and that yellow haze was a combination of all that there was in the air. Therefore, I believe um, the entities locally, um, especially in Southern California, that is very aggressive about making sure that um, emissions are taken care of and are handled and companies that are producing these emissions have a plan as to how do they handle it, how do they control it, how do they get rid of it. And, um, and, and it's something that we all walk around nowadays, um, enjoy cleaner air, and uh, we're able to see our blue skies, but um, many of uh, younger students may not remember the days that things were just really bad. And if they wanted to take a look at it, as a comparison, this is what China looks like, which they are making a lot of headways now, developing rules and regulations. But this is how bad some of the um, industrial cities and major uh, manufacturing sites in the U.S. were like. Yeah, both my parents grew up in Southern California, and so I, I got to hear a lot of stories about, especially from my mom, who grew up in La Crescenta, just a little north of Los Angeles, and she'd say there'd be some days where it would just hurt to breathe. You go outside and, it, it, you know, it, it, lots of irritation on, on all the mucous membranes and they would cancel PE and... Absolutely. And, yeah. Yep. There were, there, were, there were a lot of days and at one point in time, I don't think they necessarily had the solutions, but they would declare just bad air quality days or they actually just walked outside and um, was extremely hard to breathe. So they started looking into this more and more um, and I believe I do not know and do not recall the formation of EPA which overlooks everything in the country environmental protection agency but I believe the need became after we became a much more industrial country and nothing at all against manufacturing and having um, a robust industry but as long as we take care of all that we create and all the harm we bring on the planet Earth with, with having to uh, fulfill the needs of so many people that need um, various products and, and all that there is. Yeah, one time I got a chance to go on a tour of the uh, South Coast Air Quality Management District, which right. is our local regulatory agency and uh, they made a point that always resonated with me is you know if you if you don't like the local water you can just go buy bottled water but if you don't like the air well i guess you could buy uh if you're, if you're inside your house you could filter the air but if you're going outside you don't really have any choice so we all have to deal with the air that's around us that's right so earlier john mentioned how he got into the field of air air pollution control so how, how did you get involved in this area um well i um, have to say i owe that to john um, i uh, was doing a lot of my engineering work uh, with uh, floor daniel for a corporation for a number of years 
and that's where I was a um, chemical engineer and process engineer that worked at the company and for various projects, number of different opportunities and uh, all different types of design and plants. Um, then I did some project work and I eventually was given an opportunity to work on a project which I did not really want to. And I had uh, moral issues as well as not wanting to move from California. And I had ran into John by way of someone that was speaking to me about him. And I was contemplating remaining at Fleur Daniel or not. Um, so I uh, eventually had a chance to meet him. So John and I had the opportunity of meeting and after a while, when I uh, left Fleur Daniel, I had started working with him, which we will uh, leave the name of the company out of it. Uh, and John was the VP of engineering and had started that company on air pollution control and uh, various types of equipment due to the fact, and I sp I'm speaking on behalf of John, but he was the VP of engineering for a major company called Hurt Combustion Engineers, who was one of the first companies and pioneers in um, building pollution control systems here. So I um, found the field very fulfilling and I liked the idea of going into the environmental work and um, wanting to make best use of the engineering degree, yet putting it into better use, in my opinion. Um, and that was um, how I learned more and more about pollution control and abatement systems and the applied engineering practices that I had sort of shifted from uh, building nuclear plants and other things at Fleur over to the environmental side. Yes. How many years total have you been in this uh, air pollution abatement field? Uh, we have been together um, since um, 1995 at this location okay. and we worked together probably about a year or so prior to that elsewhere um, so we're just coming across 28 years yep and I believe that may be something that will be mentioned or not but John and I were um, co-founders of the company Ship and Shore Environmental um, in year 2000 okay. so we have been um, Ship and Shore Environmental here at this location since um, year 2000. Okay, and John, what year was it when you uh, first started in this field? 1971. Okay, so it, we just had the uh, the 50 year anniversary last 50 year. year anniversary. <laughs> yes, that's right. And later on, we'll talk a little bit about the you've you've had a front row seat to almost the entire history of air pollution control in Southern yes. California. So later on, I'm going to love to to hear your your sure. your experiences. So, so you both are, are you know, leaders in this organization, Ship and Shore Environmental. Uh, can you provide an overview of what the company does? What kind of products does it produce? What kind of services does it provide? And what kind of engineers uh, work here? Um, well, uh, what we did, and that was one of the um, goals of us moving into this arena with the mindset that we should always try to design solutions around the pollution problem that any facility may have. Therefore, we um, stayed very true and open to designing, custom designing systems for, for what the application may be. And John um, has always um, used the statement, and I quote him at times, we're not married to one technology. We realize that there must be different ways of capturing and controlling and we cannot be tied into one particular product because then at that time we will become just product um, salespeople rather than solution providers. And that's one thing that I am very proud of that we do at Ship and Shore with uh, the mindset that I shared, John brought to the table that we should be able to design different types of products for different applications. Not every single chemical and every single VOC that is out in the atmosphere can be destructed and destroyed the same way. Even though at the end of the day, what we have, VOCs have, have heating values. We want to capture as much of it as possible and try to have it 
go through our systems, various types of system, whatever that may be most economical and feasible, um, depending on what the applications are. Naturally, a system that we would design for a uh, for the emissions from a reactor would be controlled and designed differently than a printing facility that has a very steady stream of VOCs coming off from the process. Because of that, we thought that it would be great for us to have all different disciplines of engineering here in-house. We did start with um, naturally process and chemical engineers, as we both are, and then we naturally needed a mechanical to be able to get that work done, and then we realized we also have to have electrical and controls. So. In summary, we have all disciplines of engineering in-house in order to be able to design a product that is suitable to address the needs. So all different disciplines of chemical, mechanical, electrical, even structural. Naturally, in California, we are governed by the most strict seismic rules and regulations. So we adopted that for all of the systems we do around. And um, at the beginning, our goal was everything that we designed to be built right here because we had joined a company that was a manufacturing facility with the hope of bringing engineering disciplines and engineering know-how and technology to be fabricated and manufactured here. So the idea grew and became an overall concept that we built upon to be able to go to different industries. There were a number of industries we were very strong in, and then uh, we actually expanded to various industries. And any area in the country that is governed by the most strict rules and regulations as far as the available tons of VOCs that you could send out to the atmosphere is where we do most of our work. Mm -hmm. And naturally, everything in between West Coast and East Coast. But West Coast is very um, strict. East Coast is the same way, you know, New York, New Jersey, all of that area. And wherever, whichever state that you can think of that has a lot of manufacturing, Ohio is that way. Texas, um, definitely, because there's just a lot of industry, oil and gas. So oil and gas, as well as other ones naturally are the driving force behind how we set up the company to be able to service them. So right now we are recording this uh, episode inside the uh, office space of Ship and Shore Environmental. Uh, if you were to take me on a tour of your entire facility here, through the office spaces, to the big yard you have in the back, what would I see, what would I hear Describe the space to the listener and, and also um, uh, if you could discuss uh, where you'd see engineers working. Well, of course, when you come in, uh, you start at the uh, lobby and then you will uh, actually pass uh, the CEO's office and then the COO office. And then you'll come into the engineering, engineering space. This is all downstairs. We are uh, a two-story building. Our second story has uh, in one office is sales and the other office is uh, accounting and everything has to do with accounting. On the bottom floor is where the engineers are. We have all the engineers sitting and the engineers are all the project managers, project managers, project engineers, as well as the designers and the draftsmen. And then on the back part is the uh, people that take care of the uh, operations and uh, purchasing that material. Uh, uh, when you come to the backyard, this is the very first thing that you see is the equipment where we have a uh, computerized uh, system that uh, actually cuts uh, sheet metal into the different shapes that we need for the air pollution system. And then also the ones that uh, bend it and, uh, and cut it. And then coming into the backyard, uh, since this is uh, California, we do a lot of stuff in the open spaces that you cannot do in Texas or in the uh, back east, where they have everything covered. 
So that's where we uh, assemble actually the uh, systems, the design systems, all the things that have been cut, they're assembled and then they're being welded. And then uh, you will see all the welders uh, working and then uh, you will see the parts working where they actually put together the, uh, the valving, uh, the valve systems and uh, also the insulation because uh, we built a lot of incinerators uh, and uh, the thermal oxidizers and the regenerative thermal oxidizers they're all operating at uh, 1500 degrees going up all the way to 2000 so it has to be insulated because otherwise you're going to burn your metal down so uh, you will see how the insulation is done and then in the back of the uh, of the uh, uh, yard, you'll see our uh, air, uh, our uh, paint spray facility where the units are painted, and uh, you know coming back uh, forward. Uh, oh, you will also have an area where we do the piping of all the uh, for the burners as well as the gas piping, and build more the smaller parts that are being uh, assembled, uh, things like dampers. Filters that are uh, be that all part of your uh, of, the, of a whole system, and then in the end on the side uh, is that you will see the systems that are being assembled, and then uh, of course finished, and then go out of the yard. So at this moment, what is the largest piece of air pollution control equipment? You have uh, being built. built in the in the in the yard at the moment. And if you uh, look at it in. Uh, Cubic feet per minute, it would be, uh, let's see, is about 80,000 80, SCFM, standard cubic feet per minute. A unit like that is about, it's a good uh, three-story building uh, height, and uh, oh, it's probably about uh, in length uh, at least uh, 50 feet by about uh, 15 feet uh, in length. In width. Yeah, I've I've uh, had the opportunity to see um, in the past to see some of some of the very large thermal oxidizers being transported away, and it's they're put on this flatbed truck, and it's yes. it looks like it's a quite heavy and quite it large. It and is. I'm, yes. I'm sure you have to plan out exactly which freeways you're allowed to go under and exactly. or, or go through to make sure you don't destroy the overpasses. <laughs> yeah, see, and when we when we design these. We have to design what you call these sub-assemblies so that you can put it on a truck, mm. so that you can, uh, you know, the, the weight is uh, where the roads can take it. And uh, yes, it is, it, it, it is something that uh, has to be uh, thought of. It is not like uh, doing uh, a washing machine or something like that. What is a typical week like for both of you here at Ship and Shore? And um, it's probably different, I'd imagine, than, than some of the engineers that you have here. So what's a typical week like for, for some of the engineers that you have working for you? Um, well, uh, I would imagine with the engineers, uh, most of our engineers are assigned to a project or two or three. Therefore, they are um, the project managers on the projects that we will be handling. They go through the design phase, they go through peer reviews, then we do have a team here that um, does the procurement for all the equipment and um, instrumentation and everything that has to be manufactured here on site. So a typical week could be um, checking on the progress of where their project stands, a lot of communication with various clients or their own client to make sure that all that has been submitted to them has been reviewed. There are some projects that are extremely important for us to perform HAZOPS, um, which means that the client team members as well as our team members come together to um, review the what-ifs in projects. Okay. And some projects are very straightforward. They don't go through that cycle, which is extremely um, high demanding on the engineer's time. So depending on the nature of the project and nature of the client and involvement, whether we're also doing their permitting for them, because we do process a lot of their permits as far as the air quality permit will go. And at times we support them with their local city permits. 
So it, it varies from, from project to project, but most, most of the time they literally are looking after the design and working with the um, client to make sure that they're making progress towards finalizing the design, then taking it to the manufacturing and overseeing their project. And one thing we do, which is a little different than some other entities perhaps, we have always been also known to do everything from A to Z, meaning that the project comes in, we do the permitting, we do the assessment, we even do some measurement and testing to verify what is there. The engineering phase is done, then we go into manufacturing, and we actually have a team that uh, eventually travels with the unit wherever it goes or the system goes, and they oversee the installation either with local people or our own experts, um, if need be, and go into a complete startup of the unit. So because of that, a lot of people like the idea of having one entity that they work with rather than having to change hands between various contractors. And that's been a key to our success in, in many ways. So I'd like to throw a scenario at you. Let's say that I uh, want to open a factory that is going to manufacture styrofoam coolers. So there's going to be some plastics involved. There's going to be some, some styrofoam, all of which might have emissions involved. And uh, I don't know, I know about the business side of things, but I don't know anything about the, uh, the air you know, pollution reduction side of things. So I call up Ship and Shore Environmental. What happens next? Well, in Chip and Shore Environmental, so many times uh, uh, what we do is we say, well, you know, on the air pollution side, we know quite a bit about your type of a process. So one of the things that we would like to know is uh, we usually ask, what is the future? Not what you're doing exactly, what are you going to do five years from now? So when you start building uh, and designing air pollution equipment, that's what you would like to ask for, a permit for that time because then the permit, you get it today. And if they change the rules, you are what they call grandfathered in. So this is basically what we do. So if somebody comes in there, then we have to ask them, okay, in all the different type of your process, and if you want to build an EPS, uh, you want to build uh, coolers, what you need to do, you have to buy expandable polystyrene, you have to, uh, with, with the expandable polystyrene, you have to uh, pre-expanders. Mm. So what you have to do, you have to take the, uh, the uh, expandable polystyrene, that are, they are coming into little beads. The beads are about, of uh, course, one sixteenth uh, to an eighth of an inch in diameter, and they are uh, filled with pentane, about any place between four and six percent would be pentane. So that would be if you have 100 pounds of pentane, you would have four to six, uh, 100 pounds of uh, experimental polystyrene, four to six pounds of it would be pentane. This has to be brought into a pre-expander, where they're going to expand this into a uh, bead uh, that uh, becomes a, a certain weight that they want. If they say, we're going to build a uh, polystyrene cooler, now we want to do that with, uh, with, uh, with one pound per cubic foot expanded polystyrene. So the pre-expander will expand it to one, you know, one pound per cubic foot. And then the other thing is when that happens, you know, usually in the pre-expander, any place between uh, 18 to 25 percent of the four, to, you know, of the pentane, the four percent pentane is emitted to atmosphere. But that is emitted to atmosphere with steam, because steam is used to pre-expand. So uh, that steam and pentane has to be captured. Probably most listeners haven't heard of pentane. Why is pentane? Uh... Pentane is, uh, well, the, uh, it's a C5H12, though. What is it? Uh, so it's a, in high enough concentrations, it's toxic to, to people, right? And it's also- Yes, yes. Well, yeah. One of the things is, is that uh, pentane is that they, uh, for an eight hour exposure, it could be a thousand ppm. So when people work in, a, in an area. 
you know, they like to have it the, uh, uh, more down to about 600 ppm. Because otherwise what happens, you get uh, dizzy. It is like a narcotic. So from the pre-expander, it is uh, run into a fluid bed dryer, where the pentane uh, beads are dried. And from the pentane beads are dried, they're put into an aging process. And the aging process is uh, are actually big uh, silos. And the silos are uh, actually made of perforated... Uh, it is almost like mosquito screen, but these are, of course, from plastic. So they sit in there up to 24 hours. And uh, during the 24 hours, they lose pentane. They can lose up to 30% of the pentane. So we already, let's take it at the maximum, we lost 25% at the pre-expander. Now we lose another 30%. Here's already 55% of the pentane that is being emitted. Then from there it goes into the uh, cooler uh, block, the, the molds, the, the shape mold, what they call, when they shape it into a, uh, into a cooler. And at the shape mold, there you lose about 16% of the pentane. And then uh, the, uh, the, shape, the shapes, the coolers are ready. They are put into a storage area. And many times, because even when you in the shape mold, they use steam. So they put it in a storage area to dry, basically, to get the, all the water out. And that's also what's called the hot room. So also pentane comes out of there. It's about about 11%. So, uh, you know, and then about 15% remains in the product. So that goes out. Uh, yeah. So, theoretically, you, uh, 85% is taken into atmosphere. But now to capture this and do this, you know, is that basically you could only really capture about 80% maximum of the uh, Four to six percent of pentane that is in the original. So, so you'd work with the company to look at their whole process, all stages, and then figure out what technology. It, yeah, um, we, I look yeah. at all the, uh, the the whole process. Yeah, we look at it, and then say, okay, how are we going to capture it, and then where are we going to send it to? Are we going to take that pentane because there have been uh, in the early days where they tried to. Uh, absorb the pentane and carbon. And, but what happens, as I said before, pentane is very explosive. Yeah, it has an uh, auto-ignition temperature about 450 degrees. It has a uh, lower explosive limit of about uh, one and a half, uh, you know, 15,000 ppm, that's one and a half percent. So it is very flammable. And so putting it into a concentrator, like a carbon to absorb it, you are, you are now, you are uh, actually bringing the concentrations up way into the uh, flammable or explosive level. And early in the 80s, people tried that, and they've had explosions, etc. So after that, I got involved into this particular type of business in the 80s. So we said, no, nah, this is not the way to go. So. Most of the time, you would put that into a uh, regenerative thermal oxidizer because the concentrations are low enough to do that, and you use very little uh, fuel. But we have also put that into uh, what we call uh, direct-fired incinerators and then have used the pentane as part of the fuel for a boiler because the, uh, the process uses steam, you know, to do all of this. But that part is not worth it unless they are a 24-hour, seven days a week operation. Because when they are down, you still have to do the air pollution part, but you don't need the steam. So what do you do? <laughs> so, you know, you, uh, it, it, it costs too much to do it that way uh, as far as operations is concerned. So we put it to a uh, regenerative thermal oxidizer where we actually combust that. And in the regenerative thermal oxidizer, we, we return 95 to 97% of the heat that we use. So a burner is very, very small. Many cases, the burner can be even turned off 
and that they can operate on the pollutant only. Hmm. So you would um, help, so after looking at the process, you'd figure out which technology makes sense for that company, and then you would uh, build the build it here, uh, ship and shore, and I'd, uh, um, I guess have it installed on site. Do you help with the permitting process yes, at all? Yes, of course. Okay. Because way in the beginning, you know, when they, but again, because that's what we would have to do. Uh, we take uh, we take a uh, drawing like this, for instance, you know, that we then send to the uh, customer, but also discuss that with the air pollution people. I said, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we can do. And this is what we cannot do, the part that uh, goes out, because uh, many of the air pollution people, you know, are, uh, are unfamiliar as how. So we also try to uh, educate the air pollution people. You know, so we have given also uh, little seminars for the engineers. We used to do that a lot uh, the, uh, many years ago. You know, lately, uh, no longer, since you have the computers. The, uh, <laughs> the engineers, uh, at least the air pollution people, don't, don't uh, want that. So you wait until we get the uh, permit to say, okay. They write the permit, and they, since we help doing that, or sometimes a uh, consultant will do the permit uh, permit writing, but we give all the information, the technical information to the consultant, and then air pollution people send this back, send us a copy and says, okay, do you all agree with how we are going to do this uh, as far as from the legal side? And we say, yes, okay, then we build and uh, install and turn it on. Yeah. And then after it turns on and assuming everything is working properly, do, do companies typically take it from there or do they typically rely on, on say, you to monitor what's going on? No, or? they will take it from there. Okay. The only thing what we do is we watch because the air pollution people, there has to be a test done that you, that everything that we said over here, that that would happen uh, in uh, reality. Mm-hmm. So uh, a third party, which is a uh, totally independent, does the test and supplies that to the air pollution people. And then after that, we, uh, depending on the customer, we supply the surface for the unit. Okay. And, and air, by air pollution people, you mean like the South Coast AQMD? Yeah, so, okay. South Coast AQMD, right. Okay, very good. At one time, early in the, uh, well, actually in the, uh, Early uh, late nineties, early uh, two thousand, EPA got involved in that. You know, so uh, we worked a lot with EPA, and uh, EPA depended uh, also on us, like AQMD did, because we were uh, to be known as the experts. Hmm. That's why we have done about almost ninety percent of all the facilities in the United States. And even up to this day, when somebody builds a plant, they call us. You know, somehow, uh, I am the actually last person left of the experts, because we had about four experts. Two of them passed away, because they were in their 80s. And one is 94, is retired. And here I am, still working. I'm only 84, so. Well, you still got a few more years left, I'm sure. So I still have a few <laughs> years left, yes. <laughs> So this actually leads us into the next question really well. And um, you've been in this field really since its infancy. Yes. Um, And so I I always love to talk to people who've seen the evolution of an entire field from beginning to, you know, current day. This is a very broad question. You can answer it however you like. Sure. But how have, how has this field evolved from its early days till, till today? Well, in the olden days, Like I said, uh, AQMD had 15 people, and they were in uh, downtown Los Angeles together with the ARB, the uh, uh, what's it, the Air, yeah, California yeah, the, Air Resources that Board, is the uh, the state. Yeah, yeah. And uh, EPA was formed into, uh, and they had their facilities in North Carolina. Of course, they had one in Washington, the main thing. But uh, a lot of the uh, work was done there between North Carolina and uh, here, people here, and people like us that uh, actually were the uh, people doing all the, uh, in the beginning it was all testing and testing. 
you know, mostly it was uh, it's ozone was the big thing. It's uh, probably you remember that, uh, you know, school would close and you can't do this when ozone was higher than so many parts per million. And uh, so the field and uh, the other thing was they were looking then at the power plants to begin with, you know, the, the large power plants, looking at uh, the uh, uh, manufacturing plants like uh, uh, reactors that they had, chemical plants. So they were starting to go after big industry first. And uh, so personally, I did a lot of testing on the power plants here on the coast and on the uh, coal-fired power plants uh, back east. So in all this testing, we did that and uh, supplied that, of course, to the power company, but also worked with EPA and here was AQMD and uh, came up, now what can we do? How can we reduce uh, like oxides of nitrogen, you know, because that was one of the big things was the uh, acid rain. Mm -hmm. You know, that is, uh, that's when they wanted to reduce that. And that also causes ozone uh, when you uh, when the react with the sun and all of that. Yeah. And some in particular matter too. Yes, particular, yeah, yeah, particular matter from the cars and uh, you know, on, <laughs> on everything, basically. So we did a lot of testing on the, uh, and, uh, on the power plants and uh, adjusting of burners and we doing things that uh, nowadays are common, you know, recirculation of uh, uh, reducing the uh, oxygen in the air. The, you know, we did uh, uh, water injection, steam injection, and uh, so the power plants to get them down. And at that time, they were all burning uh, gas and oil. So the oil was usually, the uh, air pollution was about double of what it was uh, with gas. So it was a very, very uh, uh, time of, uh, like I say, a lot of testing, learning, learning what was happening, because uh, like I said, we didn't know, there was nothing written that you could go after or do. And uh, also worked with the people from EPA, because EPA was overlooking everything. And uh, you always had a kind of uh, a, a rivalry between EPA and the state of California. The state of California, EPA says, okay, we should write these type of uh, laws. State of California puts it a little bit stricter. State of California always was stricter. And wherever you go, even when we went into uh, areas like in Europe, they say, where are you from? Uh, oh, Southern California. Southern California, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so that is the toughest though. If you are able to take care of things in Southern California, you can take care of all pollution problems. So this was, uh, you know, it was a very interesting uh, time. You know, nowadays, you can read a lot about this, how to do certain things and, uh, you know, so. EPA is uh, large, uh, AQMD is large, where you have seen a new building there, uh, and I've seen them uh, go from one building to another to another. So yeah, I think now they have many hundreds of employees, not just 15. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's more, uh, I think they were talking about more like 1,000, 2 or 3,000 or something like that. Yeah, same with EPA, they're huge. Because uh, at that time it was very small. In, in uh, North Carolina, they were in trailers. So we, we are recording this in August of uh, 2022, and um, we're coming out of the pandemic slowly. Yes. <laughs> we're in the middle of the Omicron wave. We'll, we'll see how long this one lasts. Do you see any permanent changes to how you run operations here after the pandemic? You know, for example, are people going to maybe have the option of working from home more and Looking even farther ahead, maybe some things that are not, not even pandemic related, what do you see as, as some of the, the interesting challenges over the next 10, 20, 30 years in this field? Well, we definitely are living in a different world after the pandemic. Um, and if we were to deny the uh, existence of the hybrid um, work environment and some people realize that they just don't ever want to go back to the office and working. I think that gave birth to being very creative and doing things 
um, differently. However, um, the nature of our business is such that we definitely do need to have our engineers look after their projects and be here in-house. I do see the um, ever increasing demand for uh, our type of equipment and the industry um, because um, example, even though we're getting into electrical cars, even though we're getting into great technology that is coming online with respect to different types of um, growth we're having, but even manufacturing electric cars is going to require the car to be assembled and painted and um, the batteries that are being used, eventually all of these batteries that they're not in, in, in use have to be recycled. So a recycled plant will have emissions. The painting operation will have emission. The types of paint they want to use, and some are very fancy and some are not, are gonna have to go through spare boots and paints. So in my opinion, and um, I, I would like to be an optimist, if we want to keep breathing clean air and still be able to use a lot of our products the way we have and we work uh, with, we still would need a lot of demand for pollution control and various ways of cleaning the air that we breathe. The ever increasing number of chip manufacturers that we have to have. So all of the chip manufacturers, no matter what, their facilities is going to require a pollution control system of some sort. Um, so as a result, I think the um, industry is um, going to expand as we need more and we consume more. The only time I think I could um, confidently say we don't need it as much is we stop consuming. But <laughs> I don't think that'll be the case. I don't know if I can have an economic forecast of what the consumer level uh, would be in the next 10 or 20 years. But um, I think our uh, industry would evolve as well. We're constantly um, looking at various ways of tackling the pollution problem. Um, true, we address the air a lot, but we also are working with a lot of biofuel um, facilities now. That is another, another way of looking at clean energy, clean fuel, and so on. So that on its own would require us to be involved. So, and um, a lot more enforcement is coming about in areas where they had um, left off the idea of pollution. And one of which I like to mention is all the pollution that is created by all the vessels that are on waterways. And that has been, it hasn't been neglected, but there has not been as many solutions provided in order for them to be able to address it. But I'm very happy to say we were working with a team and we have probably one of the first uh, one-of-a-kind type of systems that is addressing the pollution of all the vessels that are come and are sitting in the ports. And the ports are seriously looking at how do we control the um, pollution coming off of all the ports. And naturally, um, everyone knows California is the most aggressive in coming up with rules and regulations and enforcement. Um, so, as, as I said, as we produce more, as, as um, uh, various nations, we also need to address the pollution problem. And we're also tackling the pollution problem in um, locations like China that is extremely polluted. A lot of industry as well as India, which is um, really strong in manufacturing, but also is beginning to address the pollution problem. And, my last thing I like to add, I always say this, um, we do not have any geographic boundaries in the air. So whatever anyone does anywhere, it will eventually travel to other parts. So if we like to have a clean planet, we need to all address it together. I think uh, there is a lot of stuff, although uh, we're all talking about doing everything electric. However, you know, like, all your uh, goods that are being shipped around worldwide are going ships. And ships are a lot of pollution goes on there. This is why right now 
You see, this is what Anusha was mentioning. Yeah, we did pretty well, like the first system. Is, uh, that is to keep the ports clean. Because so when a ship goes into a port, it still needs electricity, so it runs all its uh, auxiliary generators to generate that electricity. So and that has to be taken care of. Of course, nobody looks at the, uh, uh, well, I mean, I should say nobody, but that's what they're looking at also, is, of course, the main engines when it goes between uh, port to port. And uh, I was in Europe there, uh, that's was 2013, I think it was, and I was in Amsterdam. Amsterdam said, we want to be the first uh, zero-emission port in the world. Well, right now, it looks like that Long Beach is the closest <laughs> being that, you know. The, uh, so a lot of, the, uh, of that uh, rules that have been now and laws that have been written for California, Texas is looking very deeply into it. And actually the whole West Coast is looking into it. Yeah. So what will happen with airplanes? I don't know because it's very hard to have equipment in the air, but of course the engines will have to be, uh, you know, probably improved all this time. So maybe they'll come up with uh, electric, I don't know, because it's very possible. There are possibilities always there. And not only that, I think though when you are in this particular field, you learn a lot of other things that you can then move into. You see, like for instance, talking about the electrical, you know, this is something that while you're in this air pollution field, you start finding out. You know, you're working with companies that are making batteries and, uh, you know, other things. Say, hey, wait a minute, this seems to be a great field for me to jump into. It was just like in the olden days when everything was uh, in uh, the uh, space, space. Everybody wants to become a space engineer. And suddenly, here it stopped. So no more, uh, hey, what do we do? Many of them went into the air pollution field. Mm. I didn't you know? realize that. Yeah. So that is, uh, you know, that, that is one thing. So being in a certain type of industry in a certain field, if you're interested in it, always something will come up there. You can use your experience to. Yeah, I mean, well, with like the re uh, regenerative thermal oxidizers, there's combustion involved. That's right. So anything that has a combustion, you will exactly be much more. You'll learn that, right? How important is it? to be professionally licensed in this field. So getting your PE license and um, how important is it to get your, let's say advanced degrees, like a master's degree or a PhD, what kind of doors might that open? It, it does, uh, you know, quite, you know, having a, a PE helps, you know, because many states say, well, you know, we want to see, have the signature of a PE. You know, it doesn't matter how much you know, but it is a, you know, legal thing. So it is always good to have a PE. To be uh, uh, advanced in it, yeah, I think that would be great, especially if you are very interested in research. If you want to research things, I think it is great to have a PhD. Yeah, you almost have to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, and it helps the whole industry, you know, for you to, to, to know that. But, uh, you know, if you really want to, to learn more about the certain things, you know, get your PhD. You know, I don't have one, unfortunately. I was never good enough a student. You've done quite well for yourself. I've done okay, yes. <laughs> I've, I've done well for myself. But, uh, <laughs> would it be nice, you know, if I had a PhD? But, well, I think it, it just also shows that you know, your degree will teach you only so much. That's right. But but it's really once you once you get into a field, it's really going to be your effort, your dedication. Your, your that will effort. Yeah. And your interest. Yeah. Look around, read a lot, find out tests that were done that other people have done. You know, so you know, you really have to. This is where the uh, where you learn a lot. You know, and don't be afraid to make your hands dirty. Because, you know, because what I have done, I, many times, because I don't do it anymore, but I go to the back, etc. I said, now, this is how you do this, and you show somebody to do it. And, you know, once they see that, and they see that you know that you are not uh, dirty, that you sit there just with your nice, clean clothes, then, they, then the respect starts coming. 
And when you have that respect, the other thing that you also always should do, respect the other person. It doesn't matter of what part he is of the company, if he is the janitor or whatever. Always treat a person with respect. Respect to what he does. Learn from him. Because a lot of people you can learn from. You can learn from a painter. He says, yeah, what is painting? Oh, wait a minute, you know, you gotta be, stand exactly uh, 13 inches from there. Yeah, but why not 12? Isn't it? No, no, 13 inches if you really get it. I didn't know that. You, you, you know what I mean? You, you can learn a lot from the people that are working under you. A company is people. We are a team. And you have to work as a team, regardless if you are CEO, engineering manager, vice president, uh, welder, or whatever. You're all part of a team. Because if one of the team falls down, and I'm going to be uh, uh, even saying from, if the janitor does not clean the toilets, etc., people are going to be affected in their work. And then the whole company is affected. You see, the janitor? Yes, the janitor. So treat that janitor also right because he's part of a team. It's a team effort. Mm, and always be part of a team. Many engineers like to hold their uh, knowledge in their head because they are afraid of competition. But the thing is, what you do is teach other people as much as you can because if you want to go ahead in a company, you've got to have somebody that can take your place. You don't want to be the one that, oh, uh, if we lose him, the company is gone. So if a student right now is listening in high school or college mm -hmm. and they love what you both have been talking about, um, they're interested in getting involved in this field of air pollution control, what recommendations would you give so that they could be better prepared to enter this field and, and how could they get a, a foothold in this field? Well, uh, one of the things that I'm very happy to see as I have a son that is beginning to start college this fall is that environmental studies are becoming a major prominent area where um, students can really focus and social sciences in some ways are beginning to find their way into addressing some of these other issues that we have at hand that we're dealing with. The medical industry is looking at um, the um, problems we have created in terms of pollution that is causing asthma. Um, so if someone is thinking consciously about what could I do and what could I study and how can I become effective in making sure I serve the not only their own passion as well as um, being effective and fruitful for, for next generations to come, um, there are ways. And as long as they don't take their eyes off of the importance of the issue, they can always, even in the field of law, environmental law is becoming very prominent because there are just a lot of issues that are rising and people have to address it. Um, so if students really like to pay attention to this aspect of where we could go and what we could do with the environmental studies and the pollution control, um, I think it all sort of eventually connects together. And as you um, mentioned, um, there are a lot of universities that are taking students that like to do a lot of research on um, potential possibilities. The nanotechnology was trying to address some of the pollution at one point of time. Building new filtration systems that never ever looked at it as uh, carefully and in detail as to how do we address the pollution and how do we perhaps install filtration system where it can get rid of the particulate matters PM that is going out in the atmosphere. Nowadays, we're finding out a lot of uh, major food manufacturing facilities that do a lot of fried food just on major, major scale are having to address this because a lot of the oil droplets are beginning to really cause that PM problem as well as some of the pollution. So if students have the um, desire to, to remain in the field, there's just a lot of different um, studies they can go into, but this would be a good platform and underlying 
avenue and discipline of study. So that's that's what I think. All right, thank you. I'll, I'll let you get to your phone call. And at this point in the conversation, Anusha and John had to take a call with the customer, but we said our goodbyes off the air. I would like to again thank Anusha and John for sharing their experiences about what it's like to work in this field of air pollution abatement. In case you're interested in learning more about the company, in the show notes, I've included a description of Ship and Shore Environmental along with a link to the company's website. Well, before I go, I would like to mention that if you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways to support it. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and many others. You can rate the podcast and leave comments on whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. And finally, you can help spread the word about the podcast by telling your friends and family and anyone else you think might be interested in this podcast. If you have any comments about the episode, feel free to email me at tesepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll place the email address in the show notes. I will personally read each email and try my best to respond to them all. Take care, everyone, and goodbye for now.